So really glad to have you here this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, John 6 is where we're going to be. You can turn there. We're going through this series in the book of John, and we call this series Believe Me. And I love the book of John because we get to hear stories about Jesus through the eyes of well, his closest friend, this guy named John. And John doesn't hold back. John goes, this guy is the son of God, and you can trust him. And not only can you trust him, but you can believe in him, and not just believe in him, but you can follow him with your life. And it's incredible. But there's this part of me that is starting to get a little, I don't know, confused. Maybe the skeptic in me is starting to come out because it all feels a little too much like a fairy tale. See, we keep talking about these things called miracles, right? So Jesus was at a wedding, and they ran out of wine to serve the guests. No problem, Jesus turned some water into wine and everybody was happy again. Jesus was walking through town one day and there was a man, he was laying on this mat. This man hadn't walked in nearly four decades. No problem, Jesus says, get up. He does, he grabs his mat and he, he walks away. Jesus, last week we look at this story, Jesus had a crowd of people and they were hungry and they didn't have any food, they didn't have any money for food. And so Jesus fed all of them with um, a couple of fish and five loaves of bread. And it's great. We're going through here, and, and, and I get it, John. He is the Son of God. He has to be. How else could he do these things? And yet there's part of it that seems, I don't know, surreal. I don't want to say made up, but it feels like it feels too good to be true. Because the Jesus that we keep reading about in the Bible is this Jesus, he does miracles, he's doing these magic tricks, and that's not the Jesus that I interact with. The Jesus in the Bible feeds these crowds, but you and I know that starving people die every day in this world. And Jesus in the Bible heals sick kids, but he didn't heal your kid or your parents your sibling or a friend. Jesus in the Bible brings peace and unity to relationships. But your marriage is on its last leg and you don't know what to do. And so as we have been reading through all these stories, if I'm honest, it's hard not to look at it and ask and maybe even be a little frustrated or angry. And go, God, why haven't I gotten my miracle? Like, come on, Jesus, you didn't even know this crowd of people, and you fed them. Where, where are my answers? So how do we reconcile the Jesus that we're reading about that's doing these incredible things with the Jesus that we interact with every day? And we have got to do better than the standard Christian cliche answers. God's still in control. We live in a broken world. No, we got to do better than that. So John chapter 6 is where we're going to be. We're going to try and reconcile what we're reading with what we're living. Remember that Jesus has just fed thousands of people with just basically some leftovers. And then he leaves there and he tells the disciples that he wants to go spend some time alone. He's going to spend some time just with God. We put out a new midweek video this week. 
in our Real Talk series that we deal with, why does Jesus need this alone time with God? And why should you and I build time in our schedules to spend with God? Check that out. If you haven't had a chance to see that yet, make sure you, make sure you watch. So Jesus has retreated to be by himself. He's on this hillside that overlooks the Sea of Galilee, where we're going to pick up the stories in verse 16, and the setting is going to shift from hillside down to the lake, down to the Sea of Galilee, where his disciples are. Here's what it says, verse 16. It says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat, and they set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now, it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. So he's still up on the hill, spending time praying, recharging with God. This story shows up in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel as well. And Matthew says, he gives us this detail that Jesus actually tells the disciples to go on without him. I want to spend this time with God. You all go down, you get in the boat, you head off on this trip to Capernaum. He's on the hill, they're down on the water. Verse 18 says, a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. So remember who these guys are for a minute. They're fishermen, right? They're really comfortable on the water. An experienced sailor, the only thing that, that sort of rocks them is wind. Wind's the only thing that scares them. Rain is fine, cold weather is fine, but wind is so chaotic, it's so unpredictable that it's terrifying. Now, like just confession, I hate natural bodies of water. I don't do lakes, I don't do oceans. Swimming pool, I'm there all day long. You'll have to kick me out. I don't do lakes and oceans. So when I was eight, we were on vacation and my uncle told me, and we were like at a lake and we were having fun. My uncle told me that in every single lake in the world, there is a Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> and it's three decades later and I still hold on to that. Like I still believe that. And then that fear sort of doubled down. We were on the same trip. We were water skiing. It was my first time that I was going to water ski. And I did not want to water ski because if you're going to water ski, you got to get in the water. And there's a Loch Ness Monster in there. And I don't want any part of that. But I, okay, fine. So I get in the water. Skis are on. Got my life jacket. They throw me the rope. And I'm like, you got to get me out of here because this thing is going to find me soon enough. And I'm like, hit it, you know. And so they, they do. And the boat goes. And I, I pop right up. Like, it was easy. It was awesome. And I'm skiing. And I notice that the people in the boat, like my sisters, my mom, they're like looking at me kind of funny, pointing. And, and I also noticed that it just got a little drafty. So I look down and my swim shorts had fallen down around my ankles. But y'all, I can't let go of the rope because there's a Loch Ness Monster down there. So I hate natural bodies of water. I don't do lakes and oceans. But these guys are fishermen. They love the water. This is where they belong. Except when it's windy. When it's windy, it's scary. When it's windy, boats crash. When it's windy, they have lost friends. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on water, and they were frightened. Yeah, all right, stop for a second. You've heard this one, right? You caught this one in Sunday school as a kid. Right, right, yeah, Jesus walks on water. 
Jesus is walking on water, okay? You're in the boat, you look next to you, and there's a dude, your friend, standing on the water. Now, you might feel like something is missing. Matthew tells us the same story in his gospel, but he adds this detail that Jesus calls Peter out of the boat. He says, Peter, come out to me. And Peter actually walks on the water also. I don't know why John didn't put that in his gospel. He might have been mad at Peter that day and was like, I'm not putting him in there. I think, though, it's because his gospel is really telling us who Jesus is and wanting us to follow him and believe him. It says the disciples are frightened. Yeah, they are. And this is not, you know, your kid jumps out to try and scare you and you pretend to be scared. This is like, cannot move, wet your pants, terrifying what you're witnessing. Mark's version of the story says that the disciples see Jesus and they start screaming like schoolgirls. They're like a ghost. They think that's what it is. They can't make sense of it. Because picture it, like, like get the scene in your mind. The water is choppy. This isn't, the Sea of Galilee is not huge, so the waves don't get massive, but they're big enough. And the boat is riding up and down as each wave comes along. And it's like all of a sudden you, you, you ride up on one and you notice something in the distance. Like it looks like something coming towards you, but you go back down between the waves. And you ride up the, the next one and it's like it's a is that a person? And you go back down again and, and, and back up the next one. And you're like, yeah, it's, is that Jesus? And you go back. Your mind must be playing tricks on you. You ride back up the next one. Yeah, it's, it's him. But as soon as you're convinced of it, he goes out of sight again because you go back down between the waves. It's terrifying. The word that the Bible uses is that they are seized with fear. Literally, the disciples can't move. They're so scared. Verse 20, Jesus spoke to them, and he said, It is I. Don't be afraid. Circle that, underline that, highlight that in your Bible. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on it. We're going to see it continue to come up as we go through John. But the translation, it is I, is fairly weak. It's fairly benign. The better translation, what he really says, and just write this in the margin of your Bible, he says, I am. Do not be afraid. I am. You are what? Well, he's everything that John has been telling us for six chapters now. He's loving and he's caring and he's, he's generous and he's, oh, he's merciful and he's gracious, and he's gentle, and he's patient, and he's, he's trustworthy. He says to his friends, do not be afraid. I am here with you. You know me. I'm, I'm here with you. But there's something else to this phrase. This phrase comes up all the way back in the beginning of the Bible, way back in the first part of the Old Testament. This phrase reveals that Jesus is, is sort of telling them that he's the son of God. He's revealing his divinity. Because back in Exodus, when Moses asks God, what's your name? God says, I am that I am, or simply, I am. And so when Jesus uses this phrase, do not be afraid, I am, it's not just that your friend, some guy came out here to you. It's do not be afraid. The Son of God 
has come to join you in the storm. Watch what happens, verse 21. It says, Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Well, that's sort of anticlimactic, isn't it? Like you've got this amazing, it's this epic storm and the boat is being tossed around by the waves. It seems like it's this huge event, this moment is building and then John just goes, oh yeah, and then we let Jesus in the boat and we got there, the end. Like, what? You got it. Like, what did he do? Did, did he, I mean, he had to yell at the wind, right? Did he yell at the wind? What did he do? Did he do the, the, did he do the Titanic thing where he stood at the front of the boat? Like something. What did he do? No, John doesn't give us any more. They welcomed Jesus into the boat, and immediately they were at the shore. Oh, well, that's interesting. Tell us more about that. Immediately? Like, did he teleport it? Is this like... What kind of boat is this? Jack Sparrow and the Black Pearl just showed up, and now all of a sudden you're, you're at the, What happened? No. He doesn't give us that. It's building, it's building, it's building. He goes, oh yeah, and then uh, Jesus, and then, okay, we're here. But maybe that's the whole point. Maybe it doesn't matter if or how the storm stopped. Maybe it doesn't matter if the storm even kept going. Maybe all that matters is that they're safe. So I know what it's like to beg God to calm the storm, to beg God for a miracle. You, you probably do too. I've had maybe, I don't know, three or four instances in my life where I earnestly begged God, like you have to show up, you have to intervene in the divine way. I'm begging for a miracle. You, we could probably all tell stories like this all day long. So part of our story, part of my family's story, is that my wife Nicole and I, early on in our marriage, we wanted to start a family. We had, uh, we both had started good careers, we bought our first house, like life was, life was pretty great. And so we thought, well, let's mess it up and have a baby. And that was our plan, but God, for whatever reason, God didn't allow that to happen. And if you yourself or you know someone who has struggled with infertility, then you know it's like it becomes this all-consuming storm in life. It's, it, it takes over your world. We begged God to calm that storm. We just wanted a baby so bad, and it was like all our friends we're having babies, and it seemed easy, like they just thought of a baby, and like, poof, there was a baby. And for us, the storm just, it just kept going. I have multiple memories of sitting on the floor in our bedroom, just holding my wife's hand or just hugging her, and us just weeping together, just sobbing staring at another negative pregnancy test. How do I reconcile that with the Jesus that does miracles? With the Jesus who fed 20,000 people that he didn't even know? With the Jesus who healed the, the lame man who barely even believed in him? How do I reconcile that? How do I make sense of that? All we want is, is a baby. We want to have a child. 
And don't tell me that the answers of God's still in control and it's going to be okay. Do better than that. God, where's my miracle? You've felt this way before? Yes. I'll come back to that. Let me keep talking about what's happening at the Sea of Galilee because this Jesus that we know might feel different than the Jesus who is doing these miracles. So Jesus is on the, on the hillside. Does it matter to you? Does it influence how you think about the story if I tell you that the way that the hillside, this mountain, and the lake sit, that Jesus up on the hillside can actually see the storm coming? He can actually watch the storm come across the mountains that surround the sea and move out onto the water. He sees the whole thing. Does that change your mind about how much danger the disciples were ever really in? I don't know. Maybe it's, I kind of think, like, is Jesus, is he mean? Like, is he selfish? How could he let that happen? How could he w watch? He saw the storm coming and he told them to go get into the boat. Like, how, how does he do that? Here, here's another piece of information. At no time on this journey, on this boat ride, it's about a seven-mile journey up to Capernaum. At no time on this, on this boat ride do they lose sight of the shoreline. The whole time, you can see it. You never, it's short enough, you never go out into deep waters. You can see the shoreline the whole time. But the way the wind is blowing off the west Sure, they can't get there. They, if they want to get to safety, they can't. The wind is forcing them out into the middle of the sea. And so they're rowing really hard. They're struggling just to stay on course, just not get pushed out further. That, don't you kind of still wonder, like, okay, but Jesus, how could you let your friends struggle like that? Why, why don't you help them? Why did, why did you let them go out there to begin with? One more thing, Mark tells us that even after the disciples watched that whole fish, bread, feed a city thing, that they still didn't understand who Jesus is. So he's trying to show them something. Does that influence how you think about the story? Maybe Jesus is just trying to teach them something. Step into the story. You're one of the disciples. The boat is, is rocking back and forth. Judas is puking over the rail. He's got seasickness. You're getting tossed around in the waves. You don't know how to make it stop. If, if the wind, yeah, you're struggling against it, but if that wind stops and you're rowing as hard as you can in this direction, that wind stops or it changes, you're going to crash into the rocks and you're gonna, your boat is going to wreck. And there's probably a Loch Ness monster waiting down there for you. But it's scary, right? So go there. You're in the boat. Let me ask you this. You're in the boat. The wind is tossing you around like a rag doll. Does it matter whether the storm stops? Do you care whether the storm stops? Or do you just care that you get to the other side safely? Like, do you care whether Jesus comes out and calms the wind or just that you arrive in one piece? So is it more loving 
of Jesus to come down there and, and show you the fireworks and stop the storm? Or is it more loving for him to deliver you safely to the other side? See, remember that John's gospel is written with this purpose, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that you would have eternal life in his name. So here's what I think John is telling us. I think John is saying it doesn't matter whether the storm stops. If you're with Jesus, you're safe. See, John is writing this 50, 60 years later. He's had so much time to think about this. And as he sits down to write, he's an old man now, and he thinks to himself, he thinks to himself, what, what would I tell them? What do I want people to know about that day on the Sea of Galilee? Should I tell them about that whole Peter thing? That was wild. No, I'm not going to waste time and ink on that. Should I tell them that Jesus came out and he just snapped his fingers and the, the wind stopped? No, it's not the point of the story. Oh, he, here's what I got to tell them. If I can tell them one thing, it's that when you're with Jesus, you're safe. So back to the miracle that we were waiting for. We wanted a baby so bad. And we just kept asking, kept praying, kept hoping. By the way, you probably know somebody who, or you will at some point know somebody that struggles with infertility. Can I just give you a couple of social like rules to follow? Because it's an awkward subject, so let me just give you a couple of things. First of all, don't ask them what's wrong with them, okay? Why can't you have a, it's none of your business and it's weird and intrusive to ask. The second thing is, um, don't tell them what worked for you, okay? That's gross. They don't need to hear the story. They don't need a picture. They're good, okay? They know what's going on. They, they'll figure it out. So God, God never calmed the, this storm. For us. He never calmed the storm of infertility. I, I don't have a story, a miraculous story to tell you. I, I, I don't. I'm sorry. Instead, God blessed us with three wonderful, crazy, beautiful kids through adoption. And I am so glad he didn't give us the miracle we thought we just had to have. See, because the truth is, it's not the miracle that satisfies. It's the one who does the miracle that satisfies. See, the, the wine that Jesus, the water that Jesus made into wine, that was a cool trick. But eventually they ran out of that wine and everybody went home because the party was over. And the lame man that Jesus told to get up off his mat, amazing. Only the Son of God could do that. But eventually that guy got old again and was probably crippled again and had to be pushed around in a wheelchair. And the people that were starving, that Jesus fed, they were hungry again six hours later. See, we read the Bible. We go, God, give me my miracle already. And God goes, nope. Nope. 
I did better than that. I gave you the miracle giver. And John writes all these stories so that we would believe. But not, it's not so we would believe in the miracle. To be honest, it doesn't matter if you believe in the miracle. It doesn't matter if you believe that Jesus turned water into wine. It doesn't matter if you believe Jesus healed a paralyzed man. It doesn't matter if you believe, believe that Jesus walked on water. It doesn't matter if you believe in the miracle. Do you believe in the one who does miracles? The last three weeks now, we've been asking this question, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God whom God sent to save the world from our sins and to give us eternal life? And I, I've been thinking about that and just wondering if, if there's anyone here that, you know, you've been hearing that week after week after week, and you're here today, even in this moment, and you need to say, maybe for the first time, yes, I believe. And there's no magical prayer that you have to pray, and there's no ritual, and there's not perfect, doubtless faith that you have to have. It is just simply, yes, God, I believe. You see, the greatest miracle is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you are a follower of Christ, you are a participant and a recipient of that miracle and of eternal life. Simply by saying, God, I believe. So bad news. You might not get the miracle that you're waiting for. Keep praying, because you might keep praying. But you might not. In fact, for a lot of us, we probably won't. I don't see anywhere in the Bible that God says he'll stop the storm. But there are a couple of, of things that he does promise that we can hold on to. So when the storm is swirling and it's chaotic, we can know that we are safe. Write down a couple of things if you'd like that Jesus promises. He doesn't promise he will calm the storm. He doesn't promise a miracle. Here's what he does promise. First, he promises peace. Jesus promises peace. Later on in John, Jesus, right before he dies, he tells his disciples, if you believe, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. What's, what is this peace? I don't know. I can't understand it or explain it. Philippians 4 says that, the, that God's peace is beyond our understanding. But it's that peace that when the storms of life are, are all around you, and it seems like everything is going wrong, and that storm of infertility is, is consuming your life, and when your marriage is falling apart, and you've done everything you can, and your spouse still leaves, it's that peace it's that still, small voice that says, you're okay. You're safe because you're with me. It's that peace that gets you to the other side of the lake. And Jesus doesn't say he's going to come and fix everything and calm every storm, but he says he's going to be there through it with you, and you're going to be safe, and he's going to keep you. That's the peace that Jesus Christ promises us. The second thing he promises is to be in your boat. Jude says if you believe, God loves you and he keeps you safe in Christ Jesus. See, God invested his son in you. 
He's not going to risk that investment. He preserves you. He watches over you. He protects you. You have security in him. Yes, more storms are coming. Life is going to have more chaos. But he comes and he joins you in the boat and he stays with you and he walks you through life in a way that you don't know what happened to the storm. You just know you got to the other side and you're still safe. So we're going to keep pushing through, John. And you're going to see more miracles. And you're going to be tempted to go, God, where's my miracle? I'm still waiting. And you're going to think, how do I reconcile this Jesus that we're reading about with the Jesus that I know? Remember why John is writing his gospel. It's not so that you would believe in a miracle. It's so that you would believe in the one who can do miracles. You can trust him. You can follow him. You can believe in him. Pray with me. God, you are so gracious. You don't require perfect faith. You welcome our doubts, even when we're frustrated and we shake our fist and say, where's my miracle? You give us room to figure out this Jesus, and through it you are gentle with us and you are patient. God, some of us are in a storm. The boat is rocking all over the place and we don't know what to do to stop it. God, would you pour out your peace on us? Would you surround us with your peace? Would you get us safely to the other side? God, we believe, but help us when we don't. It's through Christ I pray. Amen.